Well, it's great to be continuing this series, Don't Miss Moments. Today, we don't want to miss the love of Jesus. So let me ask you a question. How many of you would like to become a more loving person? Let's go ahead, show of hands, we'll we'll make this audience participation. How many of you would like to become a more loving person? Okay, now I asked it that way intentionally because I I, I could have asked the question, how many of you are a loving person? And there might have been fewer hands going up. (laughs) Uh, some, Some a little bit more confident, some maybe not so much. But I think we would all agree, do I want to become a more loving person? Well, well, sure. I mean, can you imagine if we were more loving to the people around us and all the people around us were more loving toward us, wouldn't this world just be a much better place? So, so that's what we want to talk about today is how, how do we become a more loving person? Or we can state it like this, wanted, more love, and lots of it. That's a pretty, pretty safe thing to say, right? We all want more love and lots of it. We would like to become more loving people. We would like everyone around us to become more loving people. So, so, so how do we make this happen? How do you become a more loving person? It almost sounds like it could be a, a blog post, right? Seven ways to becoming a more loving person. And if I, if I went around today and we, we just kind of started throwing out some ideas, how could we become more loving? I might hear things like, well, you need to be more intentional. Just start thinking about the people around you. Maybe even plan out the ways you're going to show love for them. You know, those are some ideas that we, 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 we might hear. And those would be good ideas. And there's certainly a place for that. I would call that better budgeting your love. Okay, so I've got, I've got this much love to give. Give me some tips and tricks so that I can take that amount of love that I have and I can use it more effectively and efficiently to help more people. That would be a worthwhile discussion to have. Or, or look at it this way. Um, I can give you tips and tricks for um, how to drive your car, right? Um, using the budgeting analogy, yeah, we can, we can budget our love better. Or using a car analogy, I, you can take the car that you have, and if you will just drive more gently, coast more to your stop signs, accelerate more gently, that gallon of, or that, uh, that tank of gas that you have will get you more miles. Okay, so we could talk about love in that way. I've got this much love, tell me how to use it so I get more mileage out of it. But that's not what I want to talk to you about today. Today, I want to talk about something a little bit different, and that is, how do we take our capacity to love and make it even bigger? How do we take the the 10-gallon tank and and make it a 20-gallon tank? How do we make the current $50,000 a year love income that I've got and make it a $500,000 a year love income so that I've got more to deal with and more that I can give out to others? That would make you become a more loving person. In an absolute sense, you would become a more loving person. That is what I want to talk about with you today. Or, Or is that even possible? And Jesus, through the scripture we're going to look at today, definitively says, yes, your capacity for love can absolutely grow. And by the time we're done today, you're going to know how. In fact, I'm going to be so bold as to say, by the time we're done today, I will have increased your capacity. Well, not me. God will. So let's turn to his word and and find out how this could possibly happen. Um, We're going to turn to Luke chapter 7, and we're going to start reading at verse 36 where we see this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, 
he went to the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. And I'm just going to pause there for a second because there's some cultural context we need to understand or the rest of this isn't going to make much sense. Jesus was invited over to dinner to a Pharisee. Uh, We're going to find out his name was Simon. This Pharisee was an expert in the Bible, so to speak. He knew scripture really well, but like the other Pharisees of his time, he was very self-righteous. If you would have asked Simon, are you a loving person? Simon the Pharisee, Simon the Pharisee would have said, yes, I am. I'm a very loving person. He would have been very confident in his own capacity and measure of love. Simon the Pharisee also did not really care much for Jesus. As we go through the story today, we're going to find out that he's actually seems to be trying to trap Jesus a little bit. Uh, He's trying to... uh, I don't know, he's not showing much love or respect to Jesus. That's all going to become clear in just a little bit. But, but don't miss this one de- detail because, again, it's not going to make sense unless we understand that Jesus, as he goes to Simon's house and um, he, he goes for this dinner, it says that Jesus reclined at the table. Now, there's just kind of a cultural thing we need to understand here, that when there was a dinner party in those days, especially for a person of means, they didn't have tables like we have today, and then you sit down behind a table the tables were actually quite a bit lower, and there were like couches almost, or mats that were brought up to the table. And you would kind of lay at the table, you would recline, there would be a cushion or a pillow underneath you usually, and you would kind of recline at the table, you would eat from the table this way, and your feet were kind of behind you, and there'd be another person reclining in the same way, uh, their, their head at the table, their feet pointing away, and people lined up around the table in that fashion, that's what it means that Jesus was reclining at the table. These meals could go on for a long time. It was a relaxed position where conversation could take place. That's what's happening in this story. So it goes on and says, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Okay, a new character is introduced to the story. It's a woman whose name is never revealed, but her character is. She is called a sinful woman. The nature of her sin is not directly revealed either, but that kind of terminology, especially in the Bible times, meant that her sin was probably sexual in nature. She could have been a prostitute, Perhaps she was a known adulteress, that she had not been faithful to her husband. Whatever the nature of that sin, it was public. Other people knew about it. Other, she had a reputation, and here she was entering into the house. Um, so, she came in with this alabaster jar of perfume. That's going to come into play in just a moment. And as she stood behind Jesus, at his feet, let me just pause there, so that you understand what's happening here. Jesus laying at the table, uh, feet out behind him. This woman comes in, and she's not at the table. She's at the feet of Jesus. And that seems strange. Like, what is this woman doing in a stranger's home? Did she just waltz right in? Why didn't security stop her? Well, the custom, again, of that day was that at a dinner party like this, it was a somewhat public affair. There were people who were invited to eat, but it was kind of just well known that if you want to listen to the conversation of these people, of, of, the, of this crowd, this well-off 
you know, usually it was richer people. If you wanted to just stand like at the window of the house, or if you even wanted to, to walk in and just stand there and, and listen to what they were talking about, listen to the conversation, that was the Netflix of that day. That, that's how you would get entertained. You could listen to that, that interesting conversation. So that this woman would enter into his house was not unusual, was not strange, other than her reputation. She shouldn't have really been there, but, but for her to enter it was, was, not a, was not a problem at that time. So she entered in, she stood at the feet of Jesus, and it says, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them, wiped his feet with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Okay, now things are getting a little bit weird. <laughs> um, so she, she's, she's standing at the feet of Jesus. As she's standing at his feet, as he's reclining at the table, I don't know how many people were noticing her quite yet, but she just starts crying and crying, overwhelmed with emotion. And what we're going to find out, I think these were more tears of joy than tears of sorrow. But the tears just pouring down her face, dropping onto the feet, the tears dropping onto the feet of Jesus, just overcome with emotion, dry, crying and crying. And the, the water falling, the tears falling. Finally, she, she bends down. She doesn't have a towel. What, what, his feet are wet. I made his feet, feet wet. Now what? She takes her hair down and she actually washes off his feet, washes the, the tears off his feet with her hair. And she's not done there. She's, she's kissing the feet of Jesus as a sign of reverence and respect and deep, deep love. And then she takes that alabaster jar of perfume and she pours some of that on Jesus' feet as well, anoints his feet with oil. Certainly got people's attention. Um, it, was, it was unusual. Uh, it, was, it was notable, for sure. It goes on and says this. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, he said to himself, not out loud, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And so he's thinking, he didn't have respect for Jesus. We find that out, that he didn't show any kind of love or respect to Jesus. Um, and, and then he's thinking in his mind, yep, just like I thought, people say this guy's a prophet. If he knew what kind of woman was doing that to him, he would have nothing to do with her. Confirmed, not a prophet, a charlatan. Yep, thought so. Now listen to what comes next. Jesus answered him. Wait, wait, he, he didn't ask anything. He didn't speak. Jesus knew. Jesus answered him. Simon. Oh, he snapped out of his own mind. Oh, yes? Um, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And now Jesus tells this amazing story. And it's going to answer the question that I posed at the beginning. How do we get a greater capacity to love? Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, we don't have a rough, you know, an exact conversion chart for this. Uh, I read somewhere that a denarius is about a day's wages. Let's just use round numbers if we want to put it in modern terms. Let's say a day's wages is $100. We can argue whether that's accurate or not, but let's just say it is. Uh, one guy owes him $50,000. The other guy owes the money lender $5,000. Both not insignificant amounts, but one a whole lot bigger, about 10 times bigger if my pastor math is right, uh, 10 times bigger than the other, a much, much bigger debt. And what does the money lender do? Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts 
of both. Now, he says, which, he's talking to Simon, which of them will love him more? This is the question, and that's what we're talking about today, right? The capacity of love. So Simon, the Pharisee, I want you to tell me which of these two men will love that money lender more? Which one has the bigger capacity to love after the story that I've told you? And Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. I think Simon knows Jesus is trying to teach him something, but he doesn't quite know what yet, but he's suspicious of Jesus, so he says, well, I suppose... Um, trying to figure out where you're going with this, but I suppose it'd be the one who had the bigger debt forgiven, right? That'd be the bigger capacity to love. And Jesus says, you have judged correctly. You've answered rightly. So what Jesus is teaching Simon, and one of the really big takeaways that I want you to have for today, and if you want to jot this down, it would be this. When it comes to love, you give what you've gotten. Does that make sense? When it comes to love, you give what you've gotten. If you want to love more and have a greater capacity to love more, you have to have gotten more or recognize or or, or see that you've gotten more love and then you can give more love. When it comes to love, you give what you've gotten. Now, Jesus continues the story by applying this point very directly to Simon the Pharisee and the woman. He says this, Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did, got, you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. You see, Jesus, when he came to this this party at Simon's house, had not been shown any kind of love. He had not been shown common courtesy and hospitality that is typical for that day. Normally, when a person came to someone's house, uh, if you were a person of means, you would have a servant wash the feet of everybody who came in because the, the roads are dusty and dirty and feet kind of smell and you're about to spend time in a closed room without HVAC. And, and so wash the feet at least, show them that common courtesy. Simon didn't do that. Simon did not even provide water so Jesus could wash his own feet. That common courtesy was not given. In those days, the way you would greet somebody that you love or respect would be with a kiss. That's how Judas was able to betray Jesus with a kiss because it was the common greeting of the day. Simon did not greet Jesus that way. It's like like someone coming into your house and instead of a handshake, the old alligator pullback thing. Um, He doesn't doesn't greet Jesus in a respectful way. And, And also a custom of the day was to anoint somebody's head with oil, which to us sounds maybe a little bit gross to have oil put on your head, but, but that was a common way, again, in those days of showing respect and honor to a guest in your house, providing them with oil to, to put on their head. Simon did not do that for Jesus. So Simon showed zero love. He showed his capacity for love. Simon would have said before this, I am a loving person, and yet his capacity to love Jesus was non-existent. He was not able to show any love to Jesus. And in contrast, what did the woman do? The the sinful woman, as soon as she saw Jesus, 
She started weeping at his feet. She did wash his feet with her own tears and her own hair. And she did kiss him as a greeting of respect and love, but was kissing his feet. And she did anoint him with oil, but not his head, his feet. Because she was so humble before him, so thankful for him, so much love, an enormous capacity to love is what this woman had. So why was this woman's capacity to love so much greater than the one who we would have had a, expected to have a great capacity to love? Why was the sinful woman so much greater than the Pharisee who was respected and thought of as a loving person? Why the difference? Jesus says, verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And here's the key. Simon, the Pharisee, didn't think that he needed much of God's love. God loves me? God forgives me? Of what? I'm a good person. I'm a good man. Ask my neighbors. Ask me. I'll tell you. I am a really good person. I don't need God's love, his favor, his forgiveness much. I've earned it. I've already got it. I'm good. In contrast, the woman recognized, oh, I messed up. I've been bad. God's not happy. I'm a sinner. And Jesus forgave me. And I am forgiven. And that's exactly what Jesus confirms and reaffirms to her. Then Jesus said to her, verse 48, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman received great love from Jesus, and so she had a great capacity of love to give. It was as simple as that. So, if you want your capacity of love to increase, there are two things that need to happen, very simply. The first thing that needs to happen is this. You can jot this down. See sin's size. The first thing we need to do if we want our capacity of love to grow is that we need, first of all, to see in our own heart and lives, we have to see the size of our sins. See sin's size. And in response, you might say, good grief. It should be a little bit emotional, like that woman, right? She, she was feel, filled with emotion, weeping, tears. When we understand the size of our sin, we ought to have an emotional, visceral response to that. Good grief. What, 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 what is all this sin? How could it possibly all be forgiven? See, I think what we, we tend to do, like Simon the Pharisee, is that we tend to minimize our sin. I'm not that bad of a person. I know a lot worse people. Let me tell you about my neighbor. Let me tell you about my, my brother. Um, I am not that bad of a person. I try hard. I love people. I, I do. I help the poor sometimes, and I sometimes volunteer at church. Oh, yeah, and I'm in church, by the way. And I do. I, I'm not that bad of a person. We minimize our sin, but that's not what the woman did, and that will not help your capacity to love. First, we need to see and understand sin's size. Understand this. Even if, and I'm not sure this is true, but even if your sin is small by the world's standard, you need to understand against whom your sin is. Whatever sin you commit, your sin is also against 
God. And did you know that it matters against whom you are sinning? And that's really true of our law code as well. Um, that, that even in our legal system, it matters who you are committing a crime against, not just what the crime is. Case in point, if you uh, assault somebody um, and, and it's, you don't seriously injure them, it's just a, an incident, you're going to be charged probably with a misdemeanor and your sentence will not be severe. If you do the exact same crime to an on-duty police officer, it is a class one felony. And you're probably going to be doing time for sure. It matters who you sin against. And here's another example. Um, back in 2008, uh, George W. Bush was giving a speech before the Iraqi press. Do you remember? Anybody remember this? And a guy who who did not respect Bush and was angry at, at the decisions he had made took off his shoe, chucked it at him, and George Bush ducked out of the way, didn't hit him. Um, so no harm done. Did you know that that man was sentenced to three years in prison? And he served nine months of that sentence. Um, in contrast, if you right now aren't really enjoying this sermon much and you decide to take off your shoe and chuck it at me and I duck out of the way, probably nothing's going to happen to you. Um, please don't do that, by the way. Um, bright lights, I might not see it coming. Uh, feel free to throw soft rotten tomatoes. Those don't hurt as much. Um, so it, it matters, though. Worst case scenario, you're going to get a misdemeanor. More likely than not, nothing at all is going to happen, right? We'll laugh about it a little bit, and, and that's the end of it. It matters who you sin against. Now, understand this, that every sin we commit, no matter who we hurt or what we've done or what we've said, whatever sin there is, it is also a sin against the almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who made you to be in relationship with him, the one who made you to be blameless and holy and perfect. When we sin, we have sinned against him. And it's serious. It carries weight. Every single sin is a crime against God. It, it is, it's in a sense, it, it's treason in the kingdom of God because we have declared that I will do what I will do and you don't get to tell me whatever the sin is. That's what it is. Sin is serious. And that's what led James uh, in chapter 2, verse 10 to say this. For whoever keeps the whole law of God and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. If you were perfect your whole life, but one time you committed one sin, James says, you broke all of God's law. You are no longer a holy person. You are a sinner. That one sin that you stumbled over caused you to be a rebel against the, the king. And it's serious and it matters. And, and here's the other thing. If only... It was the one sin. But can we be honest enough since we're in church to say it's never one? That does a day go by where we don't have multiple sins? Um, maybe somebody cuts you off in traffic and thoughts or words or gestures come out of your body. Um, you, you're rude to somebody. You, you say words to them that you realize they were not say, said in a kind or, or way. Maybe they needed to be said, but certainly not like that. Um, maybe you've been anxious or you've been worried about fill in the blank, the, the diagnosis, the, the, the war in Ukraine, the inflation that's going on, my retirement, uh, this relationship, my grades. Doesn't anxiety and worry say, God, you're not, gonna, you're not there for me i got to take care of this, and I'm not sure how this is going to work out. So we have anxiety and we have worry. Isn't that, isn't that sin? 
God has given you a set number of minutes in your life to live, all for his glory, to love other people. And how many of those have we, have we wasted binge-watching Netflix? Another sin. God would love to hear from you daily. God would love for you to listen to him daily. Daily devotions and prayer, does that always happen? Another sin. You know, I've, I've just kind of gone through a typical day, and I've already come up with a few examples. If every sin is a rock that we're stumbling over, imagine a rock this big, and there was one sin, there was another, there's another, and, and over the course of the day, let's be really conservative. You've got 10 of them. There's probably way more than that. Let's be honest. 10 of them, and then we multiply that by your lifetime. And if my pastor math is right, I came up with over a quarter million rocks, sins. If, if I had a rock this big and there had a quarter million of them, I don't know if they'd fit in this room. See sin's size. Good grief. Wow. If we don't understand that, like the woman in our story did, if we're more like Simon the Pharisee, your capacity of love is not going to increase. First step, though, is to see sin's size. But we don't stop there. Because the woman didn't. Again, her weeping appeared to be out of joy and, uh, uh, and happiness, not out of, uh, not out of sorrow. Uh, because what did she do? The second thing I want you to remember today. Look at the Lord's love. Look at the Lord's love. Sweet relief. Didn't the woman do that? She looked at Jesus. She looked at his love. That's what overwhelmed her was the, the, the enormity of, of the love of God, of Jesus. Um, that's why I like this season of the church year, because I think we see more clearly the love of Jesus. We reflect on our sin, but we remember what Jesus did for us, especially in our Wednesday service at the St. Peter campus. Uh, we're remembering the extent of his love. Uh, well, first of all, we remember that Jesus in his life remained perfect. Do you remember from the first two weeks of our series, we talked about the baptism of Jesus and how the Father in heaven said about his Son that he loved him, and he said, with him I am well pleased. We know that Jesus was perfect and blameless and true because the Father himself declared it. And you remember the second week of our series where we talked about the temptation of Jesus? Satan himself, after Jesus was starving for 40 days in a moment of tremendous weakness, Satan said, now's my chance. The devil, the, the, the chief of all wicked angels, came and tempted Jesus to try to get him to sin in that moment of weakness. And Jesus withstood it. Jesus stood strong. Jesus did not give in. Jesus remained perfect and blameless and true. And during this season of Lent, we follow him then to where his life ended. Jesus deserved to be just taken straight up into heaven. The father would say, you're my son, I love you, I'm well pleased with you, come on up. Instead, Jesus went the way of the cross. Why? Because he took upon himself those rocks we were just talking about. Those rocks we were just talking about. Every one of them. And not just yours, but yours and yours and yours and mine and times billions because there's billions of people in the world. Jesus took full responsibility for it all. And he suffered and he bled and he died. He took your punishment and he declared from the cross, it is finished. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are God's child. Look at the Lord's love. 
sweet relief. It's so good. So, just as Jesus looked at the woman and promised, your sins are forgiven. He said to her, your faith has saved you. To all of you today, the Lord Jesus says, your sins are all forgiven. Your faith, that is your, your reliance upon the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did for you, your faith has saved you because you're connected to Jesus. And all that is true of him becomes true of you. Did you feel that? You just became a more loving person. Because you know the love of Jesus even better now. Don't let us stop here. Before you go to bed tonight, tomorrow, day after that, every single day, would you remember the size of your sin and the Lord's love for you? Every day. It's, it's the Christian, it's, it's, some people call it breathing for the Christian. Uh, we, call, we also call it the life of repentance. Every day, going back to the cross, acknowledging who we are and what we've done, weeping at the feet of Jesus, thankful to him for the love that he's shown for us at the cross. That's what it means to be a Christian. And I promise you that the love that has grown in you today, the capacity to love that grew during the service today, tomorrow is going to grow more, and the day after that grow more yet. Jesus gives it to you. When it comes to love, you give what you've gotten. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for what you reminded us of today, what you assured us of, what you promised us of, that our sins, they are many, they are wicked, they are huge, they are offensive to you, they are a problem, they could separate us from you for all eternity. And what you said to that woman, that her sins are forgiven, you say to us, our sins are forgiven. And you, you, you accomplish this at the enormous cost of, of Jesus' sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. You guaranteed it to us when he rose from the dead on the third day. Lord, help us to rejoice in this, to go back to this every day of our life as a Christian and to continue to grow in us, therefore, the capacity to love even more and more and more. Turn our 10-gallon tank into a 20-gallon uh, turn our, our $50,000 love income into 500000 and beyond as we recognize more and more the love that Jesus had for us and then, in turn, with us in him and he in us to love even more the people around us every day of our life. Be with us and bless us as we do this for your glory's sake and in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, Amen.